I was asked to present a talk today on some of the couples in the Bible and some of the saints of the early church to gain some inspiration for our own married lives and for our families. I will try to present a mosaic of these couples and their families, some of them with their strengths and some of them with their weaknesses. We would have to include in any discussion about married couples the first ever couple, Adam and Eve. We all know about them from the book of Genesis where we witness their tragic fall from paradise. Eve's first mistake was a carelessness of attitude. They did not take seriously the commandment of God regarding the forbidden tree. She did not have a sense of the fear of God when she allowed herself to walk near the tree, which made her vulnerable to temptation and which ultimately led to her fall. Her next tragic mistake was to bring her husband down. Even though she had already tasted and knew in an instant the misery of sin, she proceeded to tempt him and to bring him down as well, showing immediately one of the first impacts of sin on their relationship, which was to act selfishly, to think of herself first. Adam's mistake was to succumb and listen to her instead of standing firm in the Lord and remaining committed to God's commandments. He could have tried to lift her up with him so that they could humbly together seek God's forgiveness. But instead of showing humility and repentance, he offers an excuse. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. In essence, he is blaming Eve and even more so, he is blaming God because the woman you put here with me caused me to sin. Thus, another consequence of sin in their marriage and often in our marriages as well is immediately apparent. The tendency to blame each other and not to accept responsibility for our part of the problem, the sin or the crisis. In the first church soon after Pentecost, we read the dramatic and tragic story of Ananias and Sapphira. They pretended to lay all the money from the sale of their property at the feet of the apostles to be shared amongst all the Christians, but in reality, they kept back some of the profits for themselves. Husband and wife agreed to keep this a secret from the apostles. They conspired to lie. Their sin was not just lying, but also the hypocrisy of pretending to be something that they weren't. As they were not asked, or forced to sell their property. They chose to do so, as it appears now, out of vanity and for human glory. The consequences were severe and dramatic. As Ananias is speaking to the Apostle Peter and Peter basically asks him, what have you done? He collapses and dies. Three hours later, Sapphira arrives, not knowing what has just happened to her husband. She repeats the lie and as Peter says, why did you conspire against the Holy Spirit? She also collapses and dies. They were united, but they were united in dishonesty and in pretense. They were content to be lukewarm in their faith and to engage in hypocrisy, something which the Holy Spirit could not tolerate, especially in the first church, which was so full of the power, the miracles and the blessings of the Holy Spirit. St. John Chrysostom calls the money donated by this couple as sacred, and their decision 
to keep back some of it as, steal, as the stealing of sacred money. This is something good for all of us to remember, that all that we do for the church is sacred because we are doing God's work and everything we do is for his glory and not ours. In the Old Testament, the couple Abraham and Sarah stand out in many different ways. From the moment that God called Abraham and told him to leave his homeland and his people and promised that he would make a great nation of him, he experienced one setback after another, one trial after another, one obstacle after another. And throughout it all, and despite it all, he remained faithful to God. Abraham and Sarah must have wondered many times, how was this promise of God going to be fulfilled since they had no child? At this point, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah does something which is somewhat understandable. With her good sense, as St John Chrysostom says, she reasons that since she is barren and since she is past the age of childbearing, then Abraham should not suffer because of her. Out of her love for Abraham, she suggests that he have a child by her maidservant Hagar, a practice which was not unusual in that time. She reasons that God promised Abraham that a great nation will come from his seed, but God did not say that this great nation will come from her. So in a sense, she humbles herself and she suggests to Abraham another way that this promise can be fulfilled. But by doing this, she is taking things into her own hands and she tries to interpret God's plan according to her logic. And her plan misfires because when Hagar falls pregnant with Abraham's child, she begins to despise her mistress and to insult her and humiliate her to such an extent that Sarah has to send her away. What is extraordinary is that Abraham accepts Sarah's decision, even though it would mean depriving him of the one son that was to be born to him. It would have been quite easy for him to say, this is your fault, Sarah, so now you should suffer the consequences. This gentlemanly behaviour of Abraham is perhaps one of the most important qualities that we need in our married and family lives when there is an issue or a crisis to be dealt with. It is the sensitivity to refrain from criticism and from the tendency to accuse. The ability to find that balance between dealing with the issue without resorting to blame. That's the tightrope act we are called to learn in our marriage and with our children and in all our relationships. <clears throat> These incidents in the lives of Abraham and Sarah are noteworthy also in showing the consequences of taking matters into our own hands. We are often, like Sarah, impatient for a solution and we seek a solution apart from God, often with disastrous results. Sometimes we proceed, with an, we proceed with a particular approach without even consulting our husbands or wives because we're so convinced that this is the right way. Or we make a decision together 
as husband and wife, and then we proceed to act contrary to this decision because, again, we're convinced that our way is the most logical way. Often it does not even occur to us to seek the advice of others or to seek the advice of our spiritual father. Or if we do consult him, we often sabotage that advice. In essence, we are sabotaging God's plan for us. Sarah seemed to have a practical frame of mind. She was logical. She was matter of fact. She was so practical that she missed out on the power and the miracles of God. She laughed when the angels said that in a year's time she would give birth. She laughed because she knew she was past childbearing age and humanly speaking, it was impossible. However, at this very point, her logical mind becomes an obstacle to the power and the miracle of God because it's at this very point when it was impossible for man, then God made it possible and a child was conceived. The tragedy for us is that our tendency to want to be in control may prevent God's plan from reaching its potential. He allows situations and difficulties because they build in us and our children resilience and spiritual muscle. And instead of us allowing him to guide and mould us, we take over because we are over anxious or we are afraid. We try to protect our loved ones from pain and suffering, but we deprive them of experiencing the grace of God in their lives. There is no stronger example in the Bible of a spouse becoming an obstacle in a time of crisis than Job's wife. Job not only remained firm, but despite his extreme suffering and pain, he was able to assist his wife to view their suffering in a different way. Every hardship endured by Job was also felt by his wife. She watched her children die. She experienced the dramatic loss of everything that they possessed. All their wealth, their property, their way of life was gone, and she was forced to beg outside the city dump. She sat with her husband and watched the disease and the pain torture his body. The pain was so severe, it nearly broke Job. And then Job, Job's wife utters the words which are so hard to repeat. She says to him, curse God and die. These words are the last temptation by the devil to tip Job and his wife over the edge and force them to give up on God. Job's response is fascinating. He carefully listens and watches his beloved wife shrink under the weight of their shared hardship. His words read like a harsh rebuke. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? He does not say to her, you are a foolish woman. He is saying, you speak as one of the foolish women. It is like he is saying, I know you better. How is it possible that you are able to say these words? You are better than these words. Despite his suffering, he is still able to hold it together. And he reminds her that God's will comes first and their love for him should be free of self-interest. 
Are we only to accept the good times and then turn our backs on God during the bad? The trials that would split many marriages did not split Job and his wife. And a lot has to do with Job remaining strong and able to remain strong without rejecting his wife. Standing firm is not easy. As humans, we weaken easily. There is the moving example of the couple Theodotus and Rafina, early Christians of the 200s who defended their newfound faith openly and were thrown in prison in Cappadocia. Rafina was ready to give birth in prison and Theodotus was about to be tortured. He fears that he will weaken when tortured. The fact that his wife was about to give birth in prison, the fate of the little baby, the prospect of tortures was now proving too much for him in his weakened state. So he prays to God and he says, if I am in danger of renouncing you, please take my life tonight. And that night he dies and the next day his wife gives birth and in her weakened state, she also dies. Her dying wish is that God preserve and look after their baby so that he may grow up as a Christian. God heard the dying prayer of St. Rufina and Theodotis' plea and a rich Christian widow named Amia took the baby boy into her home and raised him as her own son. He became St. Mamas, who as a teenager was bold in preaching Christ and martyred when he was 15 years old. We may have read in the Old Testament the love story of David and his first wife, Michal, who was the daughter of King Saul. But their love did not last because she did not share or respect his deep love for God. After David became king, one of the first things he did was to organise for the Ark of God to be brought to Jerusalem. It had been missing in foreign lands for many years, and when he had it brought back into Jerusalem, he led the procession himself, dressed not in his royal finery, but in simple garments. He was deeply moved and overwhelmed with joy and emotion that finally God's ark was with its people. Michal, Michal looked out of the window and she saw David dressed in his simple garments without his royal robes. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and mocked him. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. He walked into the palace. He was keen to bless his household, to share his deep joy with his family and Michal unleashes her contempt. She revealed in that one sentence that she had absolutely no regard for his relationship with God. From that very moment, David turns away from her and their relationship is severed permanently. Contempt poisons relationships, it poisons marriages, it can sever our relationship with our children, our friends, and our family. Even if both husband and wife believe in God, there may be differences, 
and sometimes conflict in how to apply that faith in our everyday life, especially with our children. There may be differences, for example, in our approach to child rearing, regularity of church attendance, whether we want our children to attend Sunday school or youth fellowships, strictness of fasting, kinds of entertainment allowed, dress and modesty, our children's relationship with the opposite sex as they enter adolescence. In these cases, even though husband and wife are both Christian, there can be a lack of regard for the religious sensitivities of the other, which breeds conflict and tension. Here it is always advisable for the couple to consult a spiritual father and be guided with all these issues. The ideal situation would be for both husband and wife to have the same spiritual father, if possible, so that they are united in their approach with the children, in their religious life, and united as a family. Otherwise, the children may use one parent against another to get their way. And if their parents show contempt for each other's approach to religion or criticise their expression of love and obedience to God, then it is likely that children, our children, will grow to have contempt for their parents, for religion and for God. Some of us may know the story of Abigail and Nabal in the Old Testament. Abigail's husband was a difficult man. He was greedy, he was lazy, abusive, and he often got drunk. David, during his time on the run from Saul, had often with his band of soldiers helped Nabal's herdsmen. Now he was in need of food for his little army, so he sent a kind request to Nabal for help. In his usual fashion, Nabal bluntly refuses to help David or to give one crumb to his hungry men and dismissed David as a fraud and as a thief. Angered, David threatens to plunder Nabal's possessions. When Abigail, the wife of Nabal, heard what her son said to David's messengers, she quickly organises a huge train of goods, donkey after donkey, laden with food for David and his men. She herself led the, leads this train and when they reach David and his small army of men, she gets off the donkey, she bows down low, and with discreet tact, Abigail averts David's just anger over Nabal's insult to his messengers. With a discernment and a wisdom, she helped her husband, she helps their household, but also she heals the revenge and the hatred in David's heart. Imagine if she had done the opposite. Imagine if she screamed at Nabal and said, you worthless man, see what your stupidity has done. We will all perish. This is a complete disaster because of you. If it wasn't for you, then everything would be fine. Everything would run smoothly. I am forever having to pick up after you and save you and save us. Yet she refrained from criticising him. She knew there was not much she could do with her husband. But she definitely knew that with courtesy and good sense, she could minimise the damage. Abigail obviously had the, experience, had the experience of God in her life. And in God, there was a source of joy, enabling her to be independent of the trying circumstances of her miserable home life. 
Abigail was a joyful, gladness-bringing presence in the lives of all around her, despite the difficult man she was married to. And this makes her one of the most attractive personalities in the Bible. In the year 52 AD, the Roman Emperor Claudius issues an edict expelling all Jews from the city of Rome. That was when a Jew named Aquila embarked for the city of Corinth. By his side was his faithful wife, Priscilla. We do not know for certain whether they were both Christian at that time, but one thing we do know is that they were always together. In fact, in the Bible, one's, one's name never occurs without the other. We also learn from the Bible that they made their living together as tent makers. Not every husband and wife can work together. It takes a mature relationship to work closely under the kind of pressure a job sometimes generates. But that is evidently the kind of relationship Aquila and Priscilla had. When St Paul arrived in Corinth, he stayed with them for 18 months in Corinth and a deep and lasting friendship evolved. Aquila and Priscilla then followed Paul to Ephesus and their house in Ephesus and later in Rome became a house church, a meeting place for Christians. Theirs was an open home where all the Lord's people, high-born or low-born, were welcome. It was not a palace kept selfishly from others, but a workshop used unselfishly for God and his, and his interests. St John Chrysostom writes, the house of Priscilla and Aquila did not have couches overlaid with silver, but it had much good judgment. It did not have a coverlet, but a kind and hospitable attitude. It did not have gleaming pillars, but it had a shiny beauty of spirit. It was not surrounded by marble walls nor floors adorned with mosaic work, but it was a temple of the Holy Spirit. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. To him not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house, who for my life risked their own necks. We do not know what Paul was referring to, nor when it happened, but somewhere, somehow, Aquila and Priscilla together endangered their own lives to save Paul's. St John Chrysostom says, there is no greater title than being called fellow labourers in the Lord. For after he said, greet Priscilla and Aquila, he says, fellow labourers in the Lord. He does not say that they were rich or distinguished or well-born or well-educated, but simply my fellow labourers in the Lord. Nothing he says can equal this in the reckoning of excellence. Neither fame or education or nobility or family Nothing is more excellent, says St. John Chrysostom, than the honour of being called fellow labourers in the Lord. When Paul was in the Roman prison, waiting his death, he writes his last letter, and in that letter he says, greet Prissa and Aquila. It was just a brief and simple greeting. He uses the shorter form of Priscilla's name that we have seen in several other passages of the Bible. What he wants to do is make this last contact with them because to, they, together with Luke and Timothy, were Paul's closest friends and fellow workers. In that short greeting, Priscilla's name appears 
before Aquilas. In fact, her name is first in four out of the six biblical references to them, and that is unusual. Most references to husbands and wives in the Bible place the man first. Some say that this was because Priscilla may have been the more gifted of the two and often took the more prominent role. Yet it appears that it never affected their love for one another, their understanding of each other, nor their ability to work together. She was not competing with Aquila. She chose to use her God-given abilities as a helpmate to her husband for the glory of God. She was one of the world's truly liberated women. For there is no freedom that brings more joy and satisfaction than the freedom of obeying God's word and serving God and the church and working with her husband as fellow workers in the Lord. Aquila and Priscilla lived together, worked together, suffered exile together, and because of Paul, they came to know and love Jesus Christ together. And thus, their marriage was complete. They were one in married life, in daily occupation, in hospitality, in spiritual discernment, in sacrifice, and in service to the church. So in conclusion, if we look at all the couples that we have discussed today with their strengths and their weaknesses, then we conclude, can conclude that love brings a couple together, but what sustains their love throughout the years is respect. And secondly, seeking the kingdom of God together creates true oneness, unity and harmony in marriage. It is the bond that holds our families together. It makes a good marriage better and prevents a bad marriage from total shipwreck. With God's grace and with our own struggle and with the loving guidance of our spiritual fathers, we can enrich, sustain and repair our marriages and our relationship with our children and our families. Saint Timothy and Mavra suffered for the faith during the persecution under Diocletian. Saint Timothy was a reader in the church. They brought Saint Timothy before the governor Arian, who demanded that he hand over the sacred books. They subjected the saint to horrible tortures for his refusal to obey. Saint Timothy's suffering was so extreme that even those who tortured him implored the governor to ease up on the tortures. Then they informed the governor that Timothy had a young wife named Mavra, whom he had married only 20 days before. Arian ordered Mavra to be brought in, hoping that with her presence they could break Saint Timothy's will. Timothy urged his wife not to fear the tortures. And Saint Mavra answered, I am prepared to die with you. Saint Mavra underwent similar torments with joy and even thanked the governor for the tortures, which she endured so that her sins might be forgiven. After torturing them for a long time, Arian ordered the martyrs to be crucified. Before being crucified, they bowed down and they kissed the crosses that they were going to be crucified on. For 10 days, they hung on crosses facing each other. And on the 10th day, they offered their souls to the Lord. So I'd like to conclude with this image of this young couple 
who bow down and kiss the crosses that they are going to be crucified on, regarding it as such an honour to be crucified with Christ. We are called every day as married couples, as families, to bow down with all our hearts and to kiss the Holy Cross of our Lord, regarding it as the highest honour and our greatest joy to be crucified with Christ, to sacrifice ourselves for each other, our family and the church. So with that, I'd like to finish. And any questions can be, or comments can be um, directed to the panel. <laughs>